Well, John MacArthur was asked one time by someone why he thought that the Lord had used him in such a mighty way and sermons go all over the world and commentaries and study Bibles and why so many people wanted to wanted to listen to his preaching. And he, he responded very similar to the way the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones did when he asked a similar question, was asked a similar question. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said he wouldn't walk across the street to hear himself preach. So he had no idea why anyone would want to listen to him. And MacArthur, in his, uh, in his humility, said something similar to that. I don't have any idea why anyone would want to listen to me in particular. Uh, he said, I guess, it's, it's, if I had to give an answer, it's probably because uh, that my preaching represents answers to questions that I had myself. Whenever I approach a passage of Scripture, I have the very same questions that, that you have. And so I approach the text, and I, I ask good questions. I query it. I interrogate the text because the Bible is, is our authority. And, and I can relate to that. You know I lived 24 years of my life uh, living based upon my own opinions and a hodgepodge of, of authorities and otherwise. Um, but having become a Christian, I know that this is, is our authority. And so... How do you draw out the authority? How do you know specifically what God says about a topic? It's you, you go to it and you rightly divide it. You, and part of that includes asking, asking the right questions. Good preaching comes from asking good questions and then mining that out of the, out of the, the text. And, and we're, we're upon a topic that, that Jesus is teaching the apostles about marriage and Divorce in light of discipleship, and, and we're going to continue that topic um, today. And um, I, I know it's a topic that's very personal. Um, I know it's also a topic that's that's been somewhat debated. And uh, I, I just want to begin by telling you that that I've approached it with that in mind and and with with great care. A, a lot of the questions that you probably have asked yourself, I have asked as well. And uh, we just need to know where to, to ask the questions, uh, and, and that's the that's the text of Scripture. I have no desire to to treat this topic cavalier or without mercy or to give you my opinion. Um, my heart breaks uh, for those of you who, like me, um, may have made costly decisions in ignorance or because of the deceitfulness of sin, or you were carried away by the sin of others, or you have family members or friends that are in that situation. I want you to know um, all the hope in the universe is in Christ and there's more blood in Emmanuel's fountain than all of your guilty stains combined. And I also want you to know that, that I have one task from, from God in, in, in light of all that, and that is to do my level best to accurately handle the Word of God and to present it to you without addition or without taking away, regardless of culture or, or personal feeling. And to do otherwise would be to forsake my calling and stand before God in judgment. So Paul said to Timothy the same thing he says to me or to any other preacher, preach the Word. And in our church, the text reigns. It's master, we are slave. Um, it's the voice of God. To the extent that you accurately... Divide the word of truth. The act, you accurately communicate the authorial intent of a passage. That's God's voice. And just like you don't want 
words to be put in your mouth or you don't want to be misrepresented. God doesn't want to be misrepresented either. It's an offense to God to add to his word and bind the conscience of others. And it's also the epitome of unfaithfulness to fail to speak something that he has said and free the conscience and lead to lead to sin. And that's a weighty, weighty task, as, as you know. And so many of you pray uh, for me every week because I am, just like you, frail. So that's my task. God's task for you this morning is he's called you to heed his word, to listen. And I'm sure that many of you are sitting there listening. And you're listening specifically for what directly applies to you or someone that, that you know. And you're thinking, what about this passage? And, and what about that passage? And what do I do if this is taking place? And, and what if I was divorced before salvation? And what if I'm remarried now? What if it was after salvation? What do I do then? I, and more importantly, how does God see me in, in all of that? And, and I don't want to leave you hanging on, on any of that. So to this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be walking through the Scriptures and we're going to look at the, the, what the Bible teaches on the whole of the topic. And we're going to see what the Pharisees did wrong this morning in their interpretation. And we're going to, we're going to see that so we can avoid the, the same thing. And when we're done, we'll probably end at 1 Corinthians 7, which is the New Testament commentary on marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage and, and what happens when all of the all of the, the crooked parts of, of the fall have, have manifested in, in our lives. I want to say one other thing before we, we get into Mark chapter 10. I'm also sure that I'm not going to answer all of the twists and turns that sin has brought into your life. So I don't expect this to be a be-all, end-all sermon uh, on, on all of, your, uh, all of your, your questions. So listen... Grasp God's teaching on the topic, and if you have specific questions, what about this with these umpteen three or four different circumstances, come and ask. And I'll be happy to try to help and help you apply grace and wisdom as, um, as the Word of God and the Spirit of God would, would provide. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, and we're looking at these first 12 verses where Jesus is teaching the disciples what it means what it means to be a disciple and to follow Jesus in respect of marriage. And, and we've observed that Jesus' teaching is drastically different from the man-made religion around him. His words on this topic, when, when the disciples heard the words that Jesus speaks, and the Pharisees heard the words that Jesus speaks in chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, it was very similar to, to, to what they heard when they when Jesus gave the admonition to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand. I mean, it was that it was that radical. Because the religious culture around them had acquiesced on marriage to the point that it looked nothing like the proper interpretation of the, of the Old Testament, and it surely looked nothing like what God designed. And the Pharisees, as, as you know, taught that a man could divorce his wife for any number of of reasons. They took the passage in Deuteronomy 24, which says that you can give a writ of divorcement or you're to give a writ of divorcement if you find some indecency in, in your wife, and they defined indecency for whatever they wanted. They, it, it was indecent to burn your husband's dinner. It was indecent to wear your hair loose. It was indecent to, to turn too fast in public and show your ankles. It was indecent to talk to other men. So they took that one word... 
and then and then they created an entire divorce culture on it. They they did the same thing that they did with with all kinds of other passages in the in the Old Testament. They looked like they were not denying the Bible or denying what God said. They just they just reinterpreted or made additional room and then added all of the, the regulations and otherwise to it. That was the Pharisees. There were others who went in the opposite direction. And they 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 bound consciences and they, they, they tightened it down to the point that it was uh, like the unpardonable sin and they removed the mercy that God had placed in the Scriptures for regulating things in a fallen world. And Jesus, in His clarion fashion, cuts through all of that and takes them back to the Bible. Isn't that a novel idea? <laughs> the demands of discipleship are now applied to marriage and divorce and children and possessions and riches, and all of that is Mark 10. And Jesus uses these individuals as object lessons, live object lessons, to teach the disciples, to prepare them. And in our story, the disciples are confronted with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are used as a contrast to teach God's view about the sanctity of marriage. The marriage of a follower of Christ is understood in light of discipleship, in light of following Him. And that's very different from that of of a fallen world. The followers of Christ, we are the followers of Christ, just as the disciples were, cannot live life based on what God has regulated due to human sinfulness. We should live our lives based on what God desires and what He's established in, in His creation order. So we saw in this, this story a confrontation, a correction that Jesus gives based on the divine design, and then, and then a clarification for the disciples' commitment. You remember, if you would, in verse 4... Of chapter 10, Jesus asks, What did Moses command you? And they have a ready-made answer. Moses permitted. And they quote Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus takes them back to creation, to the beginning. And the key to the whole passage is found in verse 5. But Jesus said to them, Because of your Hardness of hearts, your cardiosclerosis. He wrote to you this, this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall be one flesh. And no longer, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And Jesus says it was because of the hardness of your hearts. Not just the hardness of the the people that lived in the Old Testament time, the hardness of your hearts, he says. Moses gave this concession. But it wasn't that way from the, from the beginning. And as I told you before, Jesus, the, the Pharisees already knew what Jesus' position was. We're in Perea. We're in the Judean ministry, which is after Galilee. So they've already heard the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus specifically says to them, whoever divorces his wife and let him give her a certificate of divorcement. It's also said, whoever does this. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of adultery, sexual immorality, pornea, as the, as the Greek says, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's also a parallel passage in Matthew 19. 
gives some additional detail. This Matthew 19 is this same scene with the Pharisees that we're, we're seeing here. But Matthew adds some things. Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, your hardness of hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, adultery, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So we're in Mark chapter 10, and it says nothing about the exception clauses. And we're in Mark chapter 10, and it says Jesus gives no further commentary on Deuteronomy 24. He takes them back to Genesis. So you obviously have questions, just as I have questions. What do you do about those passages in Deuteronomy 24? What do you do about the passage in Matthew 5 or Matthew 19, where the Bible discusses these things? What, what should we do with those? How do we, how do we, how do we understand them in light of Malachi chapter 2 verse 16, which is pretty clear, isn't it? I hate divorce, says the Lord. <laughs> I mean, that's abundantly clear. So is this some kind of contradiction? Has Jesus changed the game? What is, what's going on? None of that. Malachi is God's final word on the matter before Jesus speaks on the topic. Malachi is, is the final prophet. And so God, God's I hate divorce echoes through the intertestamental period between the prophets and between the coming of John the Baptist because of the condition that's there. And nothing is spoken by God on the topic until Jesus shows up and he begins preaching in Galilee and he, he speaks what he speaks in, in Matthew chapter, chapter 5. Well, in order to make sense out of all of it, you have to practice good hermeneutics. And you have to keep it in the right order, which is what the Pharisees didn't do. One of the first rules that you learn in Bible interpretation is a principle called progressive revelation. Obviously, we know context. Context is king over, over the passage. It's a principle called progressive revelation that the Pharisees violated. And that simply means that while the Bible is one book, God gives it over a period of time, and He gives it progressively. So when something is spoken, when God reveals something, is important. It's important to accurately interpret what that specific passage means. And so, let me give you an example. Abraham did not have as much revelation as the Apostle Paul because God had not given all of it yet. Abraham, for instance, knew that God would provide a sacrifice. I mean, he walks Isaac up the mountain believing that God could has the power to raise him from the dead if he wanted to. By faith, Abraham. Hebrews gives us the commentary. And Abraham makes that great statement, God will provide. He will provide his own sacrifice. But Abraham did not know who that sacrifice, what that sacrifice's name was going to be. And he did not know that that ultimate Messiah was going to sit on the Davidic throne because there was no David at that point. There was no Davidic covenant. Abraham knew God would provide a promised seed because he made that promise in Isaac, but he didn't know that he was going to be born of a virgin and born in Bethlehem because none of that had been revealed yet. And so when you're interpreting the revelation of God, you need to understand the order, which is why Jesus takes them back to the beginning. 
and gives them God's intent. And so you put it in a specific order. So Jesus begins with creation, a divine design. And you know what happens immediately after Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. There's the fall that takes place. I mean, you have three chapters of the Bible that describe what it's supposed to be like. The perfection of creation. And then you have the rest of the Bible that describes the mess and what God does about it and and how he redeems the people for himself. And then you have Revelation telling us what it's going to be like in in the end. The majority of the Bible describes to us God's plan of redemption, how he rescues us from these first three chapters, and also how we're to live in the midst of this this fallen world. You also have the law, which is regulations. Then you have the prophets, which gives application and correction, God speaking to his people. And then in the New Testament, you know, you have the Gospels where it's telling the story of Christ and, and his teaching, he's proclaiming and he's clarifying. And then you have the epistles, that's the letters, like we read from 1 Corinthians this morning, which gives application and do this and don't do that. And I'll answer this question for you, the Apostle Paul says, and, and no, you're doing that wrong, so let me correct you here. And then you have what we're looking forward to. Not only the earthly kingdom, but the, the eternal kingdom that's coming, where the divine, divine, the, the divine design is going to be restored. That's what I'm looking forward to, right? What you're looking forward to? <laughs> this world's not our home. This is not the end. Praise the Lord. So he starts with creation, and we end with, with the kingdom, the consummation. So now look at that. That, that same understanding of how God is revealing things and the purpose for the law, the purpose for the prophets, the purpose for the Gospels where you find Jesus speaking about marriage in these contexts, the purpose for 1 Corinthians 7, which is the epistles, and then the reality that we're not there yet. And then plug in the passages about marriage and the passages that speak about divorce in, that, in this paradigm. So you have creation. Genesis is part of creation before the the fall. It's before the fall. There's no curse or no taint of sin in the world. It's God's created intent. Genesis 2, that's where Jesus takes everybody back to. Then you you have the fall. It's a hard line. Nothing is different after the fall. We're fundamentally bankrupt. We're corrupt. The world is cursed. We're cursed. We can't think right. We die. We get sick, our relationships are messed up, we're dead spiritually, we have no hope without the intervention of the Spirit of God. I mean, it was a big deal. How big deal was it? The very first scene after the fall is Cain killing Abel. That's how bad the fall was. And then a few chapters later, God has to destroy the whole deal and start over again. So now you have the law. It regulates the purpose of the law, which is Deuteronomy 24, what the Pharisees referred to, regulate sin after the fall. The purpose of the law is to regulate. Then you have the prophets. Again, we're applying this to marriage. So we have Hosea. Hosea says a lot about marriage, doesn't it? Isaiah, pre-exile, then Jeremiah. Then Ezra, where God, through the prophet Ezra, or the prophet Ezra commands the Israelites to divorce their they're unbelieving, they're pagan wives, and then you have Malachi, all describing events 
where God applies the law in its intent toward Israel. It's application, it's illustration. And then you have the Gospels. Jesus comes along, he corrects misunderstandings. You have heard it said, you've been taught this way. I say unto you, this was God's original intent. This is exactly what God meant by that when he said what he said. So he's correcting, he's declaring, he's defining. And that's in Mark 10, that's in Matthew 5, and Matthew 19, and also in in Luke. And then you have the epistles. And that's primarily 1 Corinthians 7, where God gives a final commentary on how to apply it all now that Christ has come and the power of the gospel is reigning in the church. And we'll talk more about that whenever we, whenever we get there. You think that we've got a mess. You look at the way people came to Christ in Corinth, and they have all the questions that you and I have. They're living in concubines, they're married, they're divorced, they're, they're living together now, and they don't know what to do. And so their conclusion is, don't get married and be celibate. And Paul says, Paul says, no. And then you know in the end, the kingdom where God makes all things new and marriage is replaced in heaven. You remember whenever they asked Jesus the question? Um, so this guy was married on earth and her husband died and her brother married her and he died and he died and he died and he died and, he died and in heaven, who's, who's is she going to be? And Jesus says, you don't know anything. You're not going to be, you're not going to marry nor be given in marriage in heaven. You're going to be like the angels. And as we've said, it doesn't mean you're going to have wings and a harp and float around on clouds. The purpose for marriage, marriage was specifically given for the earth. It's, there are certain things that God gives specifically for the earth, for our time on the earth. These bodies are specifically for the earth. Flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Marriage is specific to the earth, for the earth. There'll be no purpose for marriage in heaven because the bride the church will be with Christ. The consummation will take place. And so we're looking forward to, to that day. And so the principle of progressive revelation is why Jesus takes the Pharisees back to Genesis. Because they're violating that interpretive rule. And they do it a lot. You remember their issue about the Sabbath, right? What are you doing violating the Sabbath? Do you remember what Jesus does when he talks about the Sabbath? He says, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. He takes them back. They're violating that progressive revelation, that interpretive principle. They do the same thing here on marriage and divorce. They do the same thing on salvation. They start with the law being salvation rather than faith is what brings about salvation. So Paul has to continually talk about that. In Romans and in Galatians, Abraham comes before Moses. Faith comes before law. It's always been by grace through faith. You're not saved by the law. They didn't attempt to be saved by the law. They were saved by believing God. They kept the law. They, they participated in the law because that was what God commanded them to do. And so they're starting in Deuteronomy, which, is, which was the law for regulating a sin-cursed world, not Genesis. And Genesis gives God's design on the matter. And so Jesus takes them back there in verse 5. And he says that Deuteronomy was a concession. It was something that God permitted, not commanded. And it was due to the hardness of your hearts. The hardness of human hearts is why God made that 
concession. So regardless of what you conclude about marriage and divorce, there are two things that are abundantly clear from Mark alone. Divorce was not part of God's design prior to the fall. And it's a result of sin or hard-heartedness. It only happens in a sin-cursed world. It's the opposite of God's aim, God's will, God's design. It harms people, which is why he hates it. And so the obvious question then is, if it's God's aim, God's will, God's design, why are there so many why are there so many divorces and why does the Bible speak about divorce and, and why are there so many bad marriages? And the answer is also found in the Bible, not in culture. So I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. I want you to watch, and I'll illustrate for you here, not only answering questions, but I'm going to show you how Jesus in his teaching always takes us back to what it was like before sin entered into the world. That's his aim, that's his goal. In Genesis 3.16 is where the, the cardiosclerosis or the hard-heartedness comes from. And it's part of the curse where God is announcing the curse after the fall. God tells Adam and Eve after they sinned that they brought a curse on mankind and specifically a curse to marriage. Genesis 3.16, God says... To Eve and to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Now watch this. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then he speaks something to Adam. Your desire shall be toward your husband, and he will rule over you. That's part of the curse. It's part of the reality, the fall. Instead of lovingly, graciously submitting to her husband, the woman will desire to dominate him, will desire to rule over him. Your desire will be to rule over him. That's, that's what that means. It's the same word that's used for Cain, where sin is, is desiring to overtake Cain. And man, your husband, your desire will be for your husband to rule over him, and yet he will rule over you. The, the man, in response, after the fall unchecked by the Spirit of God, will be overbearing. And he's going to try to put her in her place instead of lovingly drawing her back into the position with God. That's part of the curse. That's where bad marriages come from. That's how you get to the point where you you will do anything to get out of the pain, like, like I was in at one point. The oneness that God created before the fall is infected by the sin nature of two cursed people. And so conflict is expected now. That's what Jesus, what God's saying here in in Genesis. Now think about what Jesus says in his teaching to his followers. How are we to view the relationships? How are we to view our wives and how are we to view our husbands? Those of you in here are women. Now that you are a follower of Christ. What does he do? He takes you to Ephesians 5. It's there. And Jesus brings us back to, and what does he say? In Ephesians 5, 22 to 23. 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Don't do what is natural to you in the curse. Don't, don't desire to dominate him or rule. Voluntarily place yourself under his leadership. And what does he say to husbands? Husbands, don't be overbearing and try to put her in her place. Loving Husbands, love your wives like the example I gave you with the church, being willing to sacrifice yourself. He's, Jesus is correcting, he's declaring, he's defining God's intent. He brings them back. Feminism and chauvinism is part of the curse. It's not the solution to the curse. <laughs> it's not the solution to thump your chest and be a caveman, and it's not the solution to shave your head, burn your brassiers, and say, women rule. That's part of the curse. It doesn't work. And so the fall took the harmonious system designed with roles and oneness and turned it into struggle of the wills and selfish pursuits. And only through Jesus can this be overcome. But even then, it's still hard, right? All of God's women said, Amen. It's still hard. That's the reality after the fall. It doesn't change God's intent for women and for men in relationship. It doesn't change what we're called to be as His followers. We're brought back to that. But it explains the reality of life now. And the law was given to regulate that reality. So what is the point of Deuteronomy 24? Deuteronomy contains the general and specific regulations that govern fallen people after this curse in the promised land in the presence of God. It's Moses. It's regulation specific to this people and this time, which is why you're not under the Mosaic Law. It's after the fall. It's before the promised Messiah comes. It's called the Old Covenant. It's the precursor to the New Covenant. It's prior to the full promise when the, when the New Covenant, when God writes the desires on the hearts, not on tablets or regulations. And the purpose of the law was given to regulate sin and man after the fall and also be a schoolmaster, point us to Christ and the New Covenant. Until the Messiah comes. Something had been restored, but not fully restored. What happened at the garden? Man was cast out of God's presence. You can't be in the presence of God anymore. He used to walk with him in the cool of the day. And now God has, a, as after Abraham, he's got a people and he's got a specific land. And God's presence is now going to be in the midst of those people in the tabernacle. And yet, something's going to regulate them between a holy God and a, an unholy people till the Messiah comes. And there's also regulations that are needed between two sinners that live and all the tribes that live together. Regulations that deal with fallen behavior. So that's what Deuteronomy 24 is all about. It's not a command to divorce. It's not even a permission to divorce. It was Moses regulating the hard hearts of men. Think of it this way. The law was given after the fall. Because of the fall, to regulate the fall until the Messiah would come and make all things new. It's not something to base your application on or your doctrine on or your intent on. Think of the Ten Commandments. We hang the Ten Commandments on our house. Praise God. The thou shalt and thou shalt nots are part of the Mosaic law. It gives God's commands. 
And the first half is love him, and the second half is love others, right? That's what Jesus said. Love him, love God, and love others. That's the basics of the of the law. But it's only a small part of the Mosaic law. I mean, the Ten Commandments is just a really small part of Exodus, really small part of Deuteronomy. And the rest of it is regulations of what to do when all of it's violated. I pay this person this. I do this if that happens. I give a writ of divorcement if this takes place. So why do you have the Ten Commandments to begin with? Why does God have to give the Ten Commandments to begin with to His creation? Because loving God and loving others is not natural to mankind after the curse. It's not written on our hearts, as the Bible calls it. So He has to write it on external tablets to tell us and provide a schoolmaster and show us our need of Christ. Dr. Joel James explains it in, an, in, in his little booklet on the law this way. I just preached for Joel this past Sunday. And I happened to stumble, stumble across one of his books there. I was reading it, and I think it's really helpful to help you understand the purpose of the law. He says, the law was like a divorce lawyer. It outlined the legal procedures you had to follow after the relationship with a person had disintegrated. Take Proverbs, on the other hand. It's like a marriage counselor. It teaches you how to fix your relationships before they unravel. Let's suppose you were an Old Testament Israelite and you were digging a cistern for storing rainwater. But you neglected to fence it or cover over the gaping hole. And tragically, while nosing around for food, your neighbor's donkey fell in the hole and he was killed. If that happened, the law of Moses told you exactly what to do, legally speaking. Exodus 21, 33-34, said you had to pay your neighbor a fair compensation for his donkey and that it was your responsibility to dispose of the creature's body. In other words, Moses dealt primarily with relationships that were already broken. It gave much less attention to explaining how to keep them from breaking in the first place. That's Proverbs' job. So Moses told you how to handle the legal consequences of the cistern crisis, but didn't teach you what to do when your angry neighbor stormed up to your front door yelling furiously about his dead donkey. (laughs) That's what Proverbs was written for and many other passages. When the angry neighbor pounds on your door, Solomon says, roll up your sleeves, rub your hands together in anticipation, and he starts dishing out wisdom. A fool always loses his temper, Proverbs 29.11. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Keep away from strife. Keeping away from strife is honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. You see the difference? Regulations, instruction, divorce lawyer, marriage counselor. The law was for a fallen world, regulating sinful people in a fallen world. And the Pharisees were using Bad hermeneutics. The provision in Deuteronomy 24 assumes the practice of divorce is taking place and describes what was to be done for the wife if it happened. Genesis and Jesus in the Gospels tell you what God's intent is on the matter and your aim. 1 Corinthians 7 tells you how to maneuver through the mess of the fall and sin once you come to Christ. (laughs) when you've already done a lot of really messy things before you ever say yes to Jesus and he makes you a new creation. And Deuteronomy 24 says the woman was to be given a bill of divorce which authenticates her release 
from the marriage contract and keep her from being stoned for adultery if she remarried. It was primarily a function to provide protection for the woman who had been repudiated by her husband because of his hardness of heart. It kept more sin from happening. Adultery was punishable by death under the Mosaic Law. But if Deuteronomy 24 was applied, it removed that for the woman. And in bad hermeneutics, the Jews built an entire divorce culture around it. Deuteronomy 24 was a concession for mercy. So it brings to another question. Here's where we'll end for today. So if God hates divorce, why did he give regulations that all for divorce instead of demanding the death penalty? Why doesn't he just demand the death penalty? It's a legit question. I think the answer is found in the character of God, and it's an evidence. Not that he changes his position on the sanctity of marriage after the fall, but that he is both just and he is also merciful. Now, I'd write down this passage, Deuteronomy 34, 6-8, because I think it's one of the most important verses, important several verses in all of the Bible. It's a Mount Everest passage. It's exactly how God reveals himself in Exodus 34. It's his self-revelation. You remember Moses says, I want to see your, your glory. I want to see you. And God says, you can't because you'll die, but I'll let the, the wake of my glory pass before you. And while that's happening, God says something about himself. And this is what he says. The Lord passed before him. That's before Moses. And the Lord proclaimed about this about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I am a merciful God. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But I'm also just. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. The Lord is gracious and he's a compassionate God, but he does not overlook sin. And that's how he reveals himself. So in creation, God designed the relationship between a man and a woman on earth to be one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. And that's still the divine design. However, when you watch the fall take place, all matters of perversion happen. Genesis 6, there's angels and humans or, or harems, depending on how you take that. Men refused to be fruitful and multiply. There were multiple wives. There were sexual perversion. Men with men, women with them, women in Sodom. And God justly judged those things. He found certain acts and perversions to be particularly abhorrent. So he intervened in immediate judgment. The flood took them all away. He rained fire down upon Sodom and Gomorrah for homosexuality and a number of other things. However... For other expressions of sin, he gives his law. And he intervenes that way. 
Adultery and sexual immorality were punishable by the law. God did not rain fire or flood down from heaven upon every adulterer in Israel. He gave his law. Man to regulate. And judgment necessary. And beyond that, even some other sins, he allowed the natural consequences to come, to afflict and to correct. Have you ever wondered why it seems like God did nothing about multiple wives in the Old Testament, but he destroyed Sodom? Polygamy is sin, isn't it? Yeah, the Bible says so. Homosexuality is sin. It's not a contradiction. God says it's all wrong, but he chooses to deal with sin in different ways. But that doesn't make it right or change it to a non-sinful category because he doesn't rain fire down out of heaven or because he's merciful and he restrains his wrath. God allowed those who violated his laws of marriage to bear long-term consequences of that sin. Ask Abraham if having two wives was a good idea. Ask the Israelites today whether it was a good idea for Hagar. Ask David if taking Bathsheba had God's blessing on it. Ask Solomon if there were consequences that came over the long haul. The natural consequences of breaking God's law was surely present. The way God deals with certain sins reveals he's just and also reveals his mercy. The Bible says he is merciful in judgment and forgiving those who repent, sometimes even removing the consequences. Did the woman that was caught in adultery deserve the death penalty? Yeah. And Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. He didn't say it wasn't sin. The demand of the death penalty for adultery shows the seriousness of the sin and highlights the holiness and justice of God. And yet Deuteronomy 24 displays the reality of the fall and the compassion of God. So when Jesus says divorce is permitted because of the hardness of hearts, he's not saying divorce is a good option. He's not saying God approves of it. He's saying that it is a merciful provision instead of stoning to death. And just as divorce was more merciful than stoning, forgiveness and reconciliation is much better than divorce. And so you can see the twin responses of God towards his people, and we're going to see that in the oracles and the prophets. In the prophets, you're going to see how God deals with the people as they try to regulate Use the law in the sin-cursed world before the Messiah comes and you're going to see God speak through the prophets and you're going to see him correct his people and you're going to see him give his opinion about certain things. And then we're going to see what Jesus meant about the exception passage and then 1 Corinthians 7 before we're, we're done, but that'll all, be, that'll all be next time. So let me ask you a final question before we, we pray. If the law was given to regulate sinful man in the presence of God who lived in the tabernacle and the people had to approach God through a priest with blood and they could only do it certain ways in certain times. If the law was given to regulate sinful man prior to the Messiah coming, what kind of people ought we to be with the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us? where we are the temple of God and the Messiah's already come and he's already written his law on our hearts. You think we ought to be trying to take the law and find loopholes and use those regulations 
that we're for mercy to live the way we want to live. We have new hearts and new desires. And we've been forgiven of all of our sin. And so we look to the law for not direction. We look to the desires of Christ. And there you'll find the answer.